At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Habits, Ancient Practices for Today's World, where we'll learn to reject culture's endless stream of quick fixes for God's time-tested truth. Together, we'll rediscover age-old practices that draw us to Him, where true satisfaction awaits. How many of us know today from our lives this week or from our lived experience so far that Jesus is worthy? Amen? Amen. We can live there and just end it. And maybe that would be a worthwhile service. But we also know that based on our lives, maybe this morning or this week or in our lifetime, it isn't easy. How many of you would say that you you don't follow Jesus, you don't live a life of faith like you believe you're probably called to do or empowered to be able to do or have been modeled even to do? Are we there too? In light of that, a question our church asks often is how do we thrive as Christians? We want that answer for ourselves. We want that answer for the people we love and cherish. How do we thrive as people who have been bought by Jesus, made alive by him, and empowered to thrive, but somehow seemingly get stuck in neutral or in reverse. We're honest with ourselves. How do we thrive as Christians? The standard answer, of course, the next steps to do, if I handed you a quiz or made you stand up with a microphone and said, how do we thrive as Christians? I know this from experience. I've talked to your children. Our answers are, read the Bible and pray. Amen. Right? Good starting points. But it actually, inclusive of prayer and Bible study, expands beyond that to many things we can do to better tune in and align our minds and our hearts and our purpose with the ways of God so that we can live on earth in that kind of faith-fueled mission. There are other spiritual practices that we may be less familiar with but can help us. We may not have practiced them in the past. We might have thought those were for those other Christians in that other camp. We won't name names, but you know who I'm talking about, right? The reality is, though, in this series called Habits, we've been looking at ancient practices that apply in today's world, that apply in and from our faith tradition. We've been exploring age-old practices that draw us to God, where when we really see and know and understand and follow God, we know we can find true satisfaction. These disciplines are how we follow Jesus, how we adopt his lifestyle, copy and paste the ways he lived life to our own life. It's how we create space for emotional health and spiritual maturity. They are a means to an end. So for three weeks, we've been talking about spiritual habits, I'm going to give you a hint, three weeks wasn't enough. But last week, uh, we talked about Sabbath. The week before that, we talked about confession. And if you missed either of those two, you have to go back to our Facebook feed and catch up because they matter. And I wish we could talk about some other spiritual habits like scripture, meditation, and reading, or uh, prayer, or fasting, or solitude, or service, or celebration, or generosity. Would you like us to talk about those things? 
with your permission, change your schedules for the afternoon and go ahead and start writing a thank you note to our kids' ministry. We'll go there. No, we, we can't in three-week series cover spiritual disciplines a way that shapes and changes our life. But what we are going to do is package this together, all of those disciplines, and make it available for our life group communities this coming fall. So as we roll into September, it, you are in life group communities, right? And so as you're in those, you'll have a chance as a life group community to choose to follow along and study these further, apply them to your own rhythms as families and groups and individuals and people, and flesh them out in real life scenarios. So I'm looking forward to that opportunity. Jesus lived each of these ways. He said, follow me. Apprentice under me. Copy the details of my life. And something else that Jesus did, the topic, the spiritual discipline we're going to be drawing our attention to today, was he lived in simplicity. See, even though Jesus was a craftsman, a tradesman, a, a carpenter. He worked with wood, maybe even more likely masonry. He was in the trades. He had what was probably at least a decade, 15 years of experience, apprenticing and training and running operations. He had a skill that had a livable wage and a way to provide for a family, maybe have a house, a couple donkeys, the typical dream, right? But even though he had that kind of comfortable, perhaps predictable future, when the kingdom of God's call came, he left it. He left everything. And we don't pick up any hints of like bitterness or like, I gave this all to you, God. Like, what, what are you going to do for me here? He left all that behind. He lived in simplicity. Now, he didn't live in poverty even though he lived in simplicity. He owned what we understand, based on other passages, was a pretty simple but well-made article of clothing, a robe that was seamless, one piece, pretty good shape, got to rewash and wear that uh, all through his ministry journey, maybe update it when it had gotten ruined or torn. Some wealthy donors supported him, financed some of his travels, got food for him and some of his disciples along the way. He ate in meals. He was hosted by the wealthy and average people of the communities he visited alike and ate great meals and feasts and food and, and seemed to not be in poverty, but somehow then lived in this tension between accumulating a life that was predictable and sustainable and had a future and a retirement all squared away, a couple of donkeys and grandkids to enjoy life with, right? Like, he didn't pursue that as his end and and was content, maybe that's the thing that is hardest to understand, on the other side. With the daily bread he trusted God for. I don't know where you're leading me tonight. I have no home or roof over my head, but I trust you with today, God. Jesus lived in simplicity. He knew peace and joy. He knew what it was to have enough. Enough. You know what that is, right? Just like you and me. We know what enough is. Amazon Prime has nothing to do with our lives. We know what enough is. We're never 
envious of that vacation or trip up north that we just saw our friends posting about or the vacation cycles that they seem to have that we don't seem to get away with or the relationship that they seem to enjoy that just doesn't seem to be a part. We know what enough is, right? We struggle with this. In our world, happiness is just out there, right? Just beyond where we're at. We just need a little bit more. We want to be happy. And the crazy thing is, wanting to be happy isn't the problem. In fact, God designed us with a desire to be happy, but to find that happiness in Him. We were created with that drive. Our problem is we want to be happy, but we think more is the way to get there. Right? We think more will get us to happiness, to fulfillment, more money, more time, more friends, more stuff, more house, more leisure activities, more success, more, 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 more. It's changed not only our culture and world, thank you advertisers, it's changed not only our communities and friendships, it's changed our church. In fact, the sociologist observed kind of in essence, I'll loosely quote him, atheism hasn't replaced Christianity, shopping has. Man, that stinks. We were on the guard against, I, I don't know, the, some enemy out there. And uh, some enemy looked very different than we expected them to, perhaps. One of the most related, common, repeated experiences I've had, as I've had the gift and privilege of being able to go in on and lead mission trips over my lifetime with hundreds of students, hundreds of adults is the chance to have seen our reactions to seeing God at work in us on mission purposefully with a simple kingdom mindset. There's incredible gifts. So excited for all the students serving in our hometown, Pontiac, and Detroit this week. Such an incredible week available to our students. And church, I don't know if you know this, because of the way the world is, because COVID limitations and housing restrictions and difficulties we had this year and be able to secure enough beds, you, you don't realize like our church family desires that opportunity to serve. Isn't it a gift to have a, a next generation ministry where a chance to serve in their own hometown for a week of time booked up with a wait list in less than 48 hours? Like that's crazy. What Family has young people that are so excited to use a week of their life for Jesus that 48 hours isn't enough time to get your spot on the list. And, man, we have 300-plus students and leaders, but it really probably could have been 500, 600, 800 if God would continue to provide those opportunities. So pray with us in the years to come. He does. We want to see our church family leveraged by him. You'll hear of next opportunities for us as a church family to be involved in short-term mission trip, uh, year-long partnerships. There's lots of opportunities to serve. But when I've been on a trip and seen kingdom, simple-minded people on a mission for a week, the most common experience is we, we serve in this community. Maybe it's a different community than ours. Maybe the socioeconomics are different because we happen to live in the wealthiest segment of society in all of human history and so it's easy to find that and when we're there we everyone walks away with the same reaction how do people who have nothing in comparison to me 
have contentment, have joy, know God and trust him and see him as good, are willing to be generous and give to us, people who have far more than them, that's always the reaction, always the response. We walk away from that real confused because every single aspect of our life, every single minute of our existence, every ad we've seen, every store we've walked into, every desire of our parents at Christmas time, or whatever the life moment may be, everything about our world tells us that that's impossible. Has conditioned us and trained us to think the opposite. For the longest time, we believe that the stuff we have is what brought us worth, safety, significance, identity, that having money and stuff and leisure and houses and tech and toys, that's what defined us. So when we run into something that's different, a people who aren't defined by that, and yet have a contentment or a sense of enough, a hunger to improve their position in life, but enough who know God is good we just don't know what to do with that is your life full of stuff has that made it full of meaning that's what we want to tackle today and I love that Jesus spoke about this too he warned us to avoid operating in a consumerism paradigm. He gave us grace and the ability and even some advice that we would need in order to operate in a different way, a simple way. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 12, we're going to cover a lot of ground because Jesus spent a lot of time talking about the way the heart operates and the things that our hearts most often want to hold on to. And so in Luke chapter 12, in verse 13, we're going to pick up a moment where Jesus has been teaching and he gets interrupted. And what happens is this. Someone in the crowd said to him, hey, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Any parent knows this situation. Maybe not the inheritance, but you know, the sandwich or the cookies or the toy or whatever. And Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus is talking, and this, this man comes to him, and, you know, Jesus doesn't tell us everything he knew about the situation. But even what we can see in the text is, it's pretty obvious this guy's heart wasn't in the right place here. He wasn't trying to go through what is a traditional opportunity to go to a rabbi, a teacher, someone an outside influence and get wisdom over a family conversation that was maybe a little bit tense and tricky and trying to be equitable here. It seems like he's got an agenda and it's pretty selfishly motivated and he's trying to get someone on his side. And Jesus says, that's not my mission. I'm not solving your family issue right now. But let me speak to what I can perceive as your heart issue at this moment. And it's not just a you heart issue, random dude. 
he turns to his followers and shares it with them. And I think if his followers at that time and place in history, knowing what I know about that time and place in history, had to hear this from Jesus, I think Jesus would say it with stronger terms to our church family, his sons and daughters this morning. He addresses what's beneath the desire for more. And he says, be on your guard against that greed, that covetousness. And he roots it in something. He says, your life, the essence of what matters, doesn't consist in that stuff. That's not what matters. For Jesus, stuff does not equal the good life. That's, that's the bare bones assumption right there. For Jesus, stuff did not equal a fulfilled, a good life, lived to its ultimate purpose, lived in identity with its creator, the stuff didn't matter in comparison. It was trivial. It had no lasting impact. And he continues, he breaks it down, he shares an illustration by telling them a parable. And so he says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. So there's this scene, this guy's doing good. He's rich. He's wealthy. Life is already made for this guy. He has enough, likely far more than enough. And his enough breeds extra. The land produces plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul. You notice all the first person pronouns here? I think we're getting a hint at this person's heart condition. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. 401k, golden nest egg, we're doing fine. So, relax, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This story describes, I think, the pathway we're all told to live life to the best. It describes our culture, our religion, if we're honest with ourselves. And God speaks to this man, living our culture and religion, as it's popularly described, and says, you're a fool. You don't recognize your possessions mean very little in light of eternity. You don't realize that living for your possessions have actually obstructed your relationship with me. Jesus offers an alternative for our cultural narrative. It's one that is infinitely more satisfying to our souls, and that's this. For Jesus, the good life starts and ends with God. That is the good life right there. Are there any other circumstances that come into play here? Ultimately, no. For Jesus, the good life only requires one thing to be in place. It's God. Everything that is good is from God and in God. Therefore, to experience a good life, we must live with 
God and for God, not with and for stuff. So we'll say it this way today. Living simply makes God our treasure. Living simply makes God our treasure. That's the thing to write down or take a picture of and think about and bring into the week and year to come. Living simply makes God our treasure. Because by embracing a simplicity attitude towards all the stuff and time and activity and pursuits of our life, we grow closer to God. And then, by consequence, the natural overflow of that, we end up investing in the things that matter. We grow rich towards God, we fill the right barn with the right riches. So let's spend some time today on this idea of living simply and how it can be a spiritual habit that brings the best out of our life. And then we'll explore how Jesus continues to bring the idea of simplicity through uh, the rest of our text today. So let's start with terms. We're calling it simplicity, but you could also call it, and it has also been called, simple living, frugality, minimalism. We're not talking architecture and design. If that's your thing, awesome. Maybe that design and trend is is helpful to us because it makes what maybe is helpful to to us easy. But you don't have to be into a certain aesthetic in order to experience the quality of life that simple living can provide. I think each of those terms have a way of helping us understand the truth at play. As a spiritual discipline, though, it's most often called simplicity. So can you be with me here? We're going to call it simplicity for the rest of the day. But you could use that term interchangeably. So next, further reading. Spiritual discipline, it's been written on and practiced and preached on and studied and written on for hundreds of years. In fact, throughout Christian history, there were seasons and times where people who felt like the church had already sold out, you know, for the 18th time to a consumerism or some sort of other idolatry. They decide we need to withdraw and set ourselves up in a life that's going to be more simple. And so uh, monks developed orders and laws and rules by which they would govern themselves and their lives in a simple way. They'd have no possessions. They'd uh, be men and women at that time normally in very separate communities who were focused on a simple life for the glory of God. And I think there was something beneficial out of that. Uh, we, we saw that same trend played out in, in different people groups over the years. There's a lot we could learn. I'm not going to cover it in the next 12 minutes. But if you want to read some more, a book that absolutely drove me bonkers as I read it over the last year and a half and still challenges me, and whenever anyone asks me about it, I mostly tell them that I hate it as a book because it's super challenging to me. It goes against every way I'm wired, but I think in all of the right ways, uh, is a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. If you want a book to hate over the rest of the summer, I endear it to you. There's a chapter in there on simplicity that I think is going to do a better job than what I'm going to do here this morning. So grab it and make it the only thing you purchase because of how we're going to talk the rest of the morning for the rest of the week. (laughs) It's going to be a worthwhile purchase. So now for a definition. So that we're all on the same page. We know what we're talking about. You know what we're not talking about. I don't want anyone uh, confused or thinking something different. Simplicity is not poverty. I want to be clear about that. Being unable to provide for your basic needs, for the basic needs of those you're responsible for, is a damaging and hurtful and terrible situation to be in. That's not what Jesus is celebrating or asking us to. It's also not asceticism. 
It's not denying yourself any possessions, any luxuries, forbidding even the opportunity to own anything. That's, that's too far. It's not poverty or asceticism. It's not about living with nothing. Simplicity is about living with less for a purpose. In fact, actually the result of simplicity is it's more. The result of simplicity is more freedom, more opportunity, more focus, more fulfillment in all the ways that matter most. And so lots of definitions have been put together. And actually, I think there's something beneficial in seeing lots of definitions. It can help us understand the idea in a more well-rounded way. So let me give you four. There'll be a quiz. So you could call the spiritual habit of simplicity, you could define it like this. Choosing to leverage time, money, and talents, and possessions toward what matters most. You could say it's living in the tension of having good things while refusing to let them have you. You could say... The intentional promotion of the things we most value and, your associate pastor can't type, the removal of everything that distracts us from them, including typos. Typos are not simplicity. Having your heart so oriented towards God that you require less to have enough. I think we could have chosen any of those, camped out on any of those, but I'm going to work with this one because I think it really drives us where we're headed. I think that the best definition might be the spiritual habit of simplicity is a single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom initiated by the work of the gospel resulting in an outward lifestyle of modesty and minimalism. Now, notice the flow of this definition, because I think it's essential for how we understand the topic, the habit. It doesn't start with our stuff. The spiritual discipline of simplicity is not, you're not allowed to make any more than the average pay of whatever place you live. It's not a rule that if you break it, you're living in sin, my friends. I'm just here to tell you that. It's not a way to judge other people who seem to be able to enjoy something that I don't seem to be able to have the opportunity to enjoy, and I love them. That's not the heart of simplicity. Simplicity starts at our heart. Begins with our heart's focus. A single-hearted focus on God and his kingdom. Because it's only then that our souls are released from all the things that try to attract us. Marketing, materialism, the stuff. We're told we need to be happy. When we have a single-hearted focus on God and his kingdom, then the gospel is what defines us. And that unlocks simplicity. When God gives us the grace of understanding and being transformed by the gospel, he enables us to know and trust God and allow him to be the single treasure in our lives and in our hearts. In that sense, simplicity is what happens when we focus our hearts on God and our lives on what matters most, the kingdom of God. It's just a natural thing that happens. And remember, the entire goal of any spiritual discipline, confession, Sabbath, prayer, scripture reading, any spiritual discipline, the goal is not to achieve success in the discipline. The goal is to grow to be holy like Jesus was holy and to know that kind of life and peace and joy and fulfillment. So the how-to of simplicity then is far less important than the who reigns in your soul. That's simplicity. 
Jesus gives us some tips to unleash in our lives, some maybe markers that can help us, you know, am I doing this? Is Jesus the focus? Is the kingdom of God the thing that drives me most? So very quickly, we'll just see what he says next. He says to his disciples, therefore, because you're not supposed to allow stuff to have your heart, because you're supposed to have a simple life that makes God your treasure, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. He says not to worry. Don't be anxious. That's the first tip. And he, and he kind of goes into detail. Don't be anxious about what you'll eat, about your body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food, the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow, sow nor reap. They don't have storehouses or barns, yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? The answer there is more valuable, just, just to be clear. And, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single span to his life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, flowers, how they grow. They, they neither spoil, toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you little faith. Jesus begins to encourage his disciples towards living rich towards him. And he says something that's going to define your life if you're living this way is you won't worry. And as like the disclaimer here, get this, hear me, don't skip over this in the highlight reel. When we say don't worry, we're not talking about a clinical anxiety disorder. We're talking about a spiritual worry disorder. They're very different things. One is caused by sin, one is caused by a chemical imbalance. And there's graciously medical opportunity to find treatment and help. And you should always pursue that when that's what's going on. But when we talk about worry, the spiritual problem, I think there's a generalized worry disorder in all of us that springs from a spiritual place. And Jesus is addressing that broken tendency. And if you don't believe me, here's an experiment. What if I told you on the next slide that the way to honor God was to go home and get rid of 70% of everything in your house? So you were trying to be a good person, you didn't want to get called out in front of your friends, you didn't really like it, but you know, give it a try. You go home and you open your closet, if you can open your closet, and 70%, what's the first thing that's going to happen to most of us? I get it, there'll be a sense of joy and relief at first, like, oh, thank you, finally, permission. But after that joy and rush, you'll start to pull off that one thing that you haven't worn in, you know, 15 years or something. You wear once a season, maybe, and you go, but wait, wait, hold up. I'm worried. What, what if I need that? Or, but what will people think if I don't have that TV? People will think I'm weird. And you worry, what, what will happen if... Something comes up down the line, and I invest a lot of money in that. How could I sell it and, and get rid of it? That, that doesn't seem like a worthwhile investment. We start to worry about the thought of giving away almost anything because our hearts trust having that stuff. 
Jesus calls us to recognize that living simply makes God our treasure, and so we shouldn't worry. We shouldn't worry because worrying about stuff makes stuff our treasure. Allowing other things to give us a sense of safety or worth or happiness ends up replacing God as the one who ultimately does give us safety and worth and happiness. It makes stuff our king instead of God. Maybe you could say this way. Our worry worry reveals what we worship. When spiritual worry caused by a desire to make stuff our God is in our life, it reveals what we're worshiping. So to encourage simplicity and the necessary call to be free from worry, then Jesus invites them to consider two realities, to put down anxiety, to put down worry. He says, God's faithful. God is faithful. He provides for the birds and the flowers. He provides for food and clothing. How much more will he provide for us? God is faithful. And he also says, worry is useless. It can't change anything. So why are you letting it control your life? And he says, oh, you of little faith. Right there in verse 28. He's saying that trust is the issue here. Do we trust God? Do we trust that he's a provider who will take care of us? Do we trust that he will give us what he needs to accomplish his plans? That maybe the things he won't provide for us that we think we need, that he knows we don't need, is so that he can lead us to a kingdom mission that he has for us that we don't have a clue about yet, that we wouldn't ever ultimately decide is our pathway forward, but he knows is the right pathway forward for us? Trust is the issue here. And Jesus continues to build a case for living simply. In 29, he says... Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. Don't be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. But instead, seek His kingdom and these things will be added to you. To experience the good life, what we're focused on matters. And Jesus, in, in a parallel retelling of this story by the Apostle Matthew said it this way, seek first the kingdom of heaven. That has to be the priority. To live simply, we seek God's kingdom. This simplicity mindset boils down to kingdom first in everything we do. It's our single-hearted focus. Is the kingdom of God the priority that defines or describes our life? Jesus continues. He says, fear not. Little flock, for it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He wants the kingdom to advance. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. He doubles down on a promise for what really matters. God loves advancing his kingdom. He's going to be doing that. Trust that he's moving things in that way. So let go of other things that hold your heart and focus on God's kingdom. And then give generously. Because when we embrace a single-hearted, gospel-centered way of living, we end up asking, what do I do with all this other stuff that isn't necessarily oriented in that way? What do I do with what I have, with what I earn, with my abilities, my possessions, my leftover food after dinner today? What do I do with this stuff? 
And if I have a kingdom first mindset, I'm generous with that. I've been changed by the rescue of the gospel of Jesus. I've been confident and free from the worry of acquiring more stuff that won't define me. I'm seeking God's ways, the only thing that matters to me. I'm sure of God's happiness to unleash his love and work and power in and through me on his mission. And so therefore, what do I do with this more than enough that I have? I invest it in what matters. For Jesus, the lifestyle of simplicity leads us to give generously. He calls us to have a heart that is so singularly focused on his kingdom that we joyfully discover ourselves living more modestly than we would need to. Living a minimal lifestyle in order to be radical in investing in his purposes. For Jesus, it's just logic. It's logic. This stuff on earth doesn't matter. Why would it matter? If the stuff of my kingdom matters ultimately, not just for others to whom the gospel will advance because of the way God works in my life, but in my heart because God has unveiled the blindness of all the things that have made my life miserable. If the kingdom is what matters, then it's just logic. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. Church, what we do with our stuff guides our hearts, doesn't it? When we put away worry and get most passionate about God's agenda, we give generously, we show increasing evidence of a life built by the habit of simplicity, a life lived like Jesus lived his life. So, starting points. The Spirit's going to lead you farther than this if you're following him. But if you want to know maybe how, I might think about starting next. Start with your heart. Know Jesus as your rescuer and leader. That's what changes the God of your life from stuff to him. Then, yeah, put your money where your God is. Sit down, look over your spending, look over how you can utilize everything in your asset list for the kingdom of God. Next, it probably wouldn't hurt to search your stuff, to go through the house and see, what, do, could I be generous with this? Could I bless a friend in my neighborhood with this spare weekend that I was really looking for that new episode release? Because Magnolia Network is like just beneath Jesus, right? And uh, what, what could I do with that time asset of mine to advance the kingdom of God? Man, I'm preaching myself here. I should just walk off the stage. Get simple via community. You're in a life group. We're in life groups. We are championing the opportunity to get together with other people, mostly because those other people are different than us and drive us crazy and make us feel like we want to get out of that life group. It's the right place to be. Sorry to my life group. That's not true for us. You know who you are. Ah, that means it's our family. That's that family. What does your group have that you don't need to have? Because your group has it. You could share resources, pool opportunity. I, do I have to invest in a pool when someone in my community has a pool? Do, do I have to invest in that car when someone in my community has that car? Like, how can we together 
have everything in common so that we can be radically simple, so that we can be radically focused on a God who has radically rescued us, and we want to radically advance his kingdom. And it will cost you. It will cost you to live a life of simplicity. But it would cost us more not to. It will cost us time and a life of justice and the gift of a clean conscience and time for prayer and reflection and the relationships that we're called to lead and an unrushed soul and a life that is good. The reason we pursue living simply is to make God our treasure so that we, like Paul, could say, actually, I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content with whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with a little as with much. With much as with little. I found the recipe for being happy. Whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I I am, I can make it through anything. And the one who has made me who I am. Let's live simply with God as our treasure, church family. Thank you for joining us today as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.